at the top right. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Joan Steidinger, Ph.D. Uh, Joan is a certified consultant. She's a Ph.D. and a certified consultant through the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, and she's on the United States Olympic Committee's Sports Psychology Registry. She's written columns for psychologytoday.com and has been a sports psychologist for more than 25 years. Her new book is Sisterhood in Sports, How Female Athletes Collaborate and Compete. Welcome to the show, Joan. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, it's nice to be here. Great to have you. I guess it's really nice because Joan's in California just waking up. I'm on the East Coast in New York, and I've been up for hours. So uh, we want to get you going this morning. So Sisterhood in Sports, how female athletes collaborate and compete. And apparently, according to you in your book, Joan, uh, it's different than men. Women who are successful at sports, winners, uh, athletes, uh, even though they are very competitive, compete in a very different way than men do. So I guess that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, they revel, as you describe it, in sisterhood, even though they are fighting to win like a man does. And uh, So let's talk about this. Uh, obviously, you've had a lot of experience. You're a sports psychologist, and you're also an athlete yourself. Yes. Yeah. What, what sports have you have you done or that you uh, obviously you've been highly successful so um what particular well i actually started learning to swim at age three um and then learned to play golf at age six and then in high school i showed horses and then i in high school i was on the badminton and tennis teams but the real team i wanted to be on was cross country which i qualified for and my parents wouldn't allow me to be on it because it wasn't ladylike. And then, um, which wasn't ladylike. Okay, so you're like very competitive. Age three, you start swimming. Uh, then they won't let you compete in this uh, cross country because it isn't ladylike. What did that mean? Well, back in the sixties, uh, back in the sixties. The acceptable sports for women were equestrian, gymnastics, tennis, uh, badminton to a certain degree, and other than that, they were, you know, kind of not frowned upon, and were a lot of times the girls were regarded as maybe lesbians if they played other sports. So there were very strict parameters in terms of the sports that girls could be in in those days. Yes. 
because it wasn't ladylike. Well, exactly. you got too too rough, too aggressive, too dirty, too all of those. Is that why? Yeah, I mean, I'm a tomboy, and I always have been, and it drove my mother crazy um, because she was a you know, she was a Southern and English lady, and um, so I w- and I was set up for athletics from way back because both my parents were actually quite athletic. They played golf frequently. And, and bold on a regular basis. All right. So when your mother tells you you can't do this, Joan, you're not going to be able to play this sport because it's, you're, it's not ladylike enough, what was your reaction? I was shocked, actually, at the time. But when my parents made those kinds of decisions, there was no discussion that went on. You just weren't going to play a sport. Um. And they never came to, my parents also never came to my games in high school, any of my tennis and badminton uh, games. Because um, my mother, who was the most available, of course, because she didn't work, um, was ambivalent about her daughter playing, you know, sports that are somewhat rough and tumble. Particularly badminton uh, was more rough and tumble. Well, it's interesting. Your parents didn't come to watch you play sports, and particularly your mother, who was free to do that, but yet mm-hmm. you excelled, and you were really good at it. Because I know today with parents, it seems parents have to go to every game or the kid isn't going to do well. Uh, you know, they need the support, it seems to me, maybe too much of everybody coming, even the whole family having to come and go to all their games. So, it's, But you could you could still excel without them there to to uh, encourage you to to play, which I find interesting. But all right, so you but nevertheless you became an athlete and then of course a sports psychologist. So how did that happen? Well, it's it's an interesting progression. I was very interested in sports my whole life. I was exposed to, I mean, my I sat with my father regularly and watched NFL games. Um, you know, I had more friends back then who were athletic too. I was in an all-Girl Scout backpack troop, which is all we did was backpack. And um, so my my interest, and then my parents sent me off to camp. I lived in a working ranch in eastern Oregon uh, where I had to get up in the morning and milk the cows and feed the pigs and um, learn and do help with the baking and go on cattle drives. So... Um, it, there was always this emphasis on being active, physically active, actually, in my family. And um, I had such a bad tennis coach in high school that I actually quit playing tennis for a few years. Because what would be, what's was, a bad tennis coach? Somebody who was, uh, what, just... Negative, to... yelling, critical, uh, not ever... Uh, talking about anything you did right, it was always you're doing everything wrong, which consequently made me play tennis worse. So my game got worse under that coach. Um, and so to- when I went off to grad, off to college, I was a very serious student, and um, my focus actually became on uh, school and really getting good grades because I knew at 19 I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, So I didn't really do a lot of sports until I took up running in 19, when I was 24, 
and I got a golden retriever dog that was a rescue that was fat. And everybody was complaining to me about this fat dog. So we started running at night for a couple of miles uh, uh, at a time. And within a month or two, the dog was no longer fat. But we kept running anyhow. <laughs> so you you got the dog fit. I assume you were already fit. You weren't fat. You were in shape. No, when... at that time, I was not in good shape. It's the only time in my life I haven't been really in good shape. Um the demands of grad school uh, were a lot because I was taking full loads. I was working, and then I was volunteering. So I pretty much had no time at all for much um, relaxation. But you're getting or, a Ph.D. in psychology, and what year was that? Because I, how, what is, you know, how long has sports psychology been around as a field? I mean, you get a Ph.D. in psychology in something in a specific um, do you focus on a specific field in psychology, or is it it's just a Ph? Not just, but it's a PhD in psychology, not sports psychology necessarily. Well, there are nowadays PhDs in sports psychology, um, and there have been more and more in the last ten or fifteen years. Um, I got a PhD in clinical psychology, but I was interested in, even back then in doing sports psychology because in my first year of my PhD program. I was lucky enough to train with the woman uh, psychologist who ended up being the clinical psychologist for the 84 and the 88 Olympic track and field teams. So she took me under her tutelage, and we worked with synchronized swimmers and runners, and she got some basics going from for me. And so I, I shaped my next two internships around things that I would need, skills that I would uh, use in terms of working with athletes and, and peak performance issues. So I got So what are some it, of those skills? Like specifically, if you're working with an athlete, what are some of the skills in terms of what you offer to them as a sports psychologist? What do you do? And is it the same for each sport, or is it very specific to each sport? Swimming's different than running, that, you know, different than tennis. Um, you know, how does that work? Well, the the principle, I mean, sports psychology principles are the same, but I do believe that people need to know the mechanics of a sport just to understand who they're dealing with. And and people ask you to come for a variety of different reasons. They ask you to come to help build team camaraderie. They ask you to, to come to provide inspiration. They, they're asking me now to come and talk about women in sports. But what's um, the difference between and you and a coach, Like, what's the difference between you and a coach? Like you said, you know, camaraderie, you know, get the team together so they're working together. So why would the coach call you in as opposed to just handling it him or herself? I mean, how does that – give me some example, for instance. I'll what, give you a great example. Yeah. I uh, worked with the City College of San Francisco. Uh, cross-country team. And what I did is I would come in and we talk about the specifics mentally, totally from the mind perspective. I'm not getting into, I don't get into the strategies, you know, how to play and what moves to make. So I strictly focus on the mental aspects. And with these, with this team in at City College, we were 
in a discussion with the girls about what their blocks were in terms of performing more. And one young lady spoke up, and she was describing how they had an older um, master's level national uh, runner on their team, which you could you can do with uh, community colleges here as long as they take, I don't know, one or two classes. So when they would go to their cross-country meets, Lisa would run hard, but then she'd catch up to Honor, and then she couldn't pass her because Honor was um, older, you know, this national figure, um, you know, all these things, and she felt intimidated to pass her. And so one of the things that I did, and the coach hadn't realized this. See, that, this is something I pulled out from the girls that you know, that hadn't been told to the coach. So you get more information. You know, it's a fresh face. You know, you're objective. Um, you're not as involved. And you can see things that the coach might miss. So I suggested this young woman just at the next meet, if she felt like it and she still felt like she had energy, run past honor. And she did. And she not only ran past honor, she ran herself into Cal Berkeley's team and then became captain of the cross-country team and eventually became an all-American miler. And the coaches said to me repeatedly over the years that that was the key that helped her stretch herself to what she was really capable of doing. Just that one little intervention. So has she been grateful to you for that day, for that time? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm in contact with her. She's in my book. Um, I never really, you know, I tend to just want people to improve, and I didn't think it was a big deal at the time. And then Ken is the one who's brought it up, that because I did that, it helped her make this huge transition. And she's, yeah, we're, she and I are still friendly. You know, we talk. She's talked about getting a master's in sports psychology. She's actually a PE teacher at a local high school um, and just had her first um, baby last year. And she's very successful and very happy with her life, but is very interested in the mind. Uh, yeah, so you, you're focusing strictly on the mind, and you, it sounds to me like, well, in this case, and maybe give us some more examples that are in the book, because there are lots of examples of these female athletes, but you kind of as pick or you find those things mentally that are holding the women back so that they're yes. not performing, let's say, peak performance, and you're able right. to hone, hone in on that and then to help them get through it so that they can achieve? Yes, that's exactly what happens. Um, right. And women have example? a lot of That's blocks. A good, what? One of the things that girls and women tend to do, they tend to underestimate their abilities, much more so boys tend to overestimate their abilities. So it creates quite a, quite a contrast. Well, uh, this is a good, uh, good maybe time to get in specifically to the book because I think that's true, not only in sports, but it's true, I think, at work. Uh, oh, women, you know, whether it's in the work or if you, you know, their skills at work, women tend to, I think, underestimate. Men tend to overestimate. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had 
um, psychologists on the show talking about, you know, women were afraid to ask for raises when they deserve it. Men have no qualms about asking for a raise when they don't deserve right. it. So it kind of fits into this whole thing you're talking about in sports. But so yeah. what are the differences? Because, you know, that's what the book is about, how female athletes collaborate and compete, sisterhood in sports. So how does that well, work out, sisterhood in sports? Because when, uh, when I think of sisterhood, it's like you're supporting the other person, you're patting right. them on the back, you're making them feel good. So how can you be aggressive and get ahead yourself and is, is that like as I picture men doing you know they have that kind of like really aggressive demeanor and you can see how they're gonna you know win the game but it's different for women how is it different for women well I think it's not mutually exclusive I think women just as well as men can be tough as nails but they don't think of things like annihilating or killing you know the other competitor off um, their thinking works a lot different. And the the differences are, both from a psychological and a neuropsychological perspective, there's been a lot of research done on the female brain since Luanne Brizendine first wrote that book in 2004, The Female Brain. And what we're seeing is women's strengths are that we, uh, our talking is very important to us. And we're going to always talk more than men, and by far we're going to talk more about relationships than men. Secondly, um, we need to really have surround ourselves with positive relationships, and not and we need intimate or emotional relationships uh, as opposed to men's more thinking activity based relationships. We also have a drive to bond and collaborate and connect with one another. Um, this is a basic um, element of how our brains work. Uh, we're intuitive. We're empathic. We might have a little bit of worry. Um, those are all kind of natural things that are built into us biologically and then reinforced psychologically in the culture. How does that work, Joan, then in terms of winning the game? Let's say a team. Take a team. Take an example from your book. Um, and what would be the difference from a winning team, a woman's winning team, as opposed to a men's winning team? So they don't have that need to communicate in the same way, talking, being empathetic to one another. The team has a is different in terms of how they interact, men and women? Oh, absolutely. Women operate in circles. Men operate in ladders, in a hierarchy. And the way the men's uh, sports go is you line up in the ladder and the last guy, they're trying to kick off the ladder. Whereas women get together in a circle and want to be friends and want to really like each other and really succeed. And things that happen to them is motivation. It's, you know, achieving something that they, that those are the kinds of things that, really get them going. Um, One of my favorite examples um, is of an underdog team. It's a high school basketball team in uh, San Rafael, San Rafael High. And what happened is the the assistant coach asked me to come in, speak to the girls, because they had not won a game all season, and they had a very slim chance of winning the game uh, the next day. So she brought me in to talk to the girls and see if I could get them, uh, 
get some fire in your belly, so to speak. And what happens is we're talking about different things like focus and concentration and, and motivation. And um, one that I, when I ask on a scale of 1 to 10 um, girls, what, how motivated are you? How motivated are you to win tomorrow? And they're like, I don't know, four, three, five. And then one year, girl yells out, 25. And I said, okay, guys, come on. What's it going to take for you to get 25? Use some of the words that I suggested um, that you use. And it was like excitement, motivation, uh, commitment. Because that was the other thing I said was that they needed to commit and persist and work hard to be able to win. And so there's all these words um, thrown out. And when I left, the girls were not, like, super excited, but their energy level, you could see, had risen quite a, quite a bit. And the next day, they went out and played this game that they had a very slim chance of winning. And they not only won, but they beat the team by 35 points. And... um this was phenomenal. I mean, the coach was beside herself. And then they played, they only had a few more games after that, and they played much stronger in all the other games. Um, so I think, and the girls were not as connected, and they got more connected when they won this team. Um, with men, it's like if everybody's a good player, that's all they care about. Even if somebody's kind of a, uh, unpleasant person and um, they'll go out and play for a variety of reasons but the winning issue is a much bigger one to them in terms of motivation uh, in terms of real achievement so they're 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 mo- they approach things more from like that activity base go for it win you know go for the win um So you address men and women quite differently. So what are the implications, Joan, for this, for, say, sports for girls? Because sports, I guess even starting in elementary school, I guess it involves, it's very different then when you put your daughter into a sports team in in fifth grade or sixth grade. Expectations are different. uh, Are different things that parents need to be aware of? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the book has a whole chapter um, on the family that plays together stays together. And some of the most successful athletes that I interviewed, because I interviewed um, quite a few Olympians and pros, is, um, now I've lost lost my thought for a second here. Yeah, well, you interviewed a lot. It's very different. The game is different. Uh, and you interviewed, you said, a lot of, uh, of, of pros, of pro athletes. So there are lessons to be learned. The parents need to learn how to, to work with their girls in sports, and yeah. that's different if they want them to achieve than with, with the young boys. Yeah, girls need what they need to know. And somebody asked me this on an uh, event I was doing on Monday night about, well, what would you tell a coach about what's the most important thing working with girls. And what I told her is the girls need to know that the coach cares about them and sees all of them as equally important. 
even the ones that aren't as good of players. And he needs to motivate them and work with them in a more positive way and explain in detail about how to do strategies. Uh, and when they don't know how to do something on the, say, a pitcher's on the mound and something's going wrong, you know, constantly yelling at them does not tend to help them get better. Girls, whereas a man might react differently to that. Um but girls need to be cared for, thought about, seen as individuals, and um, that is not true for men so much. Um, but the camaraderie, I think, with girls and with men is quite different because with girls, it's like there's real emotion connections that go on, and with men, it's more like, you know, hoorah, you know, the, the guys are together. Uh, it doesn't have the depth of feeling that girls express in their relationships. And why am I not surprised about this? I think it's interesting because as you're describing how women communicate with one another, the need for communicating with one another, talking, caring about each other, which is different than men, um, I, my question is I wonder why we haven't applied that to the sports scene even earlier. I mean, because... Um, it, it just seems to fit into the persona of women. I mean, that's the way they behave with their children and, we, you know, at work. Um, so why not in sports? Well, I think it's interesting because I, I had the idea for this book in 94. I wrote my first proposals for the book in 97, handed them out at a big convention, American Psychological Convention. And of course, it was reject, 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 reject. And on... Um, then the next year I went and interviewed um, 40 ultra-running women that pretty much echoed my thesis um, in terms of relationships and emotionality. I think the world is still not ready to incorporate women's needs and women's way of being in the world. Um, the business world still, you know, gets upset if uh, people get emotional about things. Um, and well, we say women are better negotiators now. We've given them that, you know, because yeah. of these skills that you've been talking about, and that that's a positive thing in the business world. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and but men still yell at women and tell them they got to be more like men. And the fact is, if women were allowed to be more like themselves, they'd get a lot more out of them, as opposed to them constantly feeling pressure to change and be something or not. Um, well, I think that's... There's a lot, lot to offer. Women have a lot to offer that men don't, you know, things that men don't see. Yeah. Well, so your book is very important. I mean, it, it, and I would imagine now, I mean, you're talking about the 90s, but hopefully we skip ahead a few years, that now um, we're kind of ready to read your book and to incorporate it into training women in sports, athletes, kids. Uh, you know, young women, because I think this whole idea of sisterhood in sports, as you say, is going to get a lot more out of these young women in terms of how they accomplish and are competitive than, you know, screaming and yelling at them, as you say, which works better for men. I don't know about screaming and yelling, but it's a a very different approach. Right, right. Well, this, this book has such a universal appeal. Before it was even released, I discovered that uh, a journalist in Zimbabwe had written an article and quoted my book from uh, Amazon. And um, 
you know, so it's not, this book is not just about women in the United States, it's about women around the world um, and the importance of us acknowledging and being who we are. Now, there is a lot happening, I have to say, Catherine, in the um, uh, more global initiatives are taking to get women going in sports in different countries. Um, and I, there's a, I'm trying to think of the website. I think it's Women's Sport International website has shows um, women in different countries rallying together to play sports. Right, so the uh, website is Women's Sport International, and uh, Joan, you're saying that this is not specifically, your book isn't specifically relevant to our culture in the United States, but it really covers, it's a world culture, a culture of women, I guess, with the culture yeah. of women in sports, and it yeah. applies whether it's in Zimbabwe or the United States. So, um, you know, we only have a minute left, so I want to mention the book again, Sisterhood in Sports, How Female Athletes Collaborate and Compete, Joan Steidinger, Ph.D., uh, website, we can go to your website. You can buy the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere. But uh, just give us a website before we say goodbye. Um, actually, my, I have a Facebook page for Sisterhood in Sports, um, the title of the book. And my website is currently Power Zone PhD. Great. Well, it was great to have you on the show this morning. Uh, and I recommend the book to all my listeners, Sisterhood in Sports, How Female Athletes Collaborate and Compete. Um, again, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure, and this book has been a work of passion since it took me 20 years to get it to where it great. is today. Well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, we are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute with my next guest. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. are listening to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox. Welcome back. Uh, joining me this morning is Jack Schaefer. Uh, he's a psychologist, a professor, an intelligence consultant, and a former FBI special agent. Uh, Dr. Schaefer has spent 15 years conducting counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations and seven years as a behavioral anal- analyst for the FBI's National Security Division's Behavioral Analysis Program. Um, he has a new book. His new book is The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide, which he is, to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jack. Well, thank you. So you are a former, it's kind of like a very, I guess, sexy profession, I I would call it. Um, Kind of sounds very intriguing to be an FBI special agent. Um, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, um, obviously that's in the minds of all of us today. Um, and now you've written this book about how we can use some of the skills that you used as a FBI agent to improve our lives. Is that it? So that yeah. improve our, in terms of attracting people, friends, doing well at work, uh, in many different kinds of situations. Um, I guess my, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so, okay, let's. I just want to first start out with a special agent. Well, you're not doing that anymore. Special agent, uh, FBI, national security. How do they train you? You must have had. Ex- obviously, you have extensive training um, in terms of how how to and how does that fit in to the book in terms of like for us as um, individuals to use those skills to improve our work situations, our relationships, uh, as you say, winning people over, influencing people. As a uh, behavioral analyst, we spend a lot of time just watching people, looking at their behaviors, and uh, it boils down to basically trying to get people to like us because if people like us, then they're more apt to tell us their secrets, which will put them in jail perhaps for a long time. Or we want to convince them to change sides and, and work for us. And uh, the like switch covers all the human relationships across cultures, across age groups. And uh, we've identified certain verbal and nonverbal cues that normal people do when they enter into normal relationships. And uh, it's a great conversion from the work over to the human side because we were forced you know, as being FBI behavioral analyst, to kind of thin slice the uh, human relationship. So what did you do exactly, I mean, as a behavioral analyst? I mean, obviously I, we think of, you know, CSI, uh, all those television shows, Criminal Minds. Uh, is, is that what it's actually like? Uh, it could be a little bit different than what we see on TV. Uh, what we do is we get uh, information about the person, as much information as we can, and then we sit down and we analyze that behavior, and then we develop strategies that will help us uh, uh, achieve the goals that we want to achieve for that particular case. So there are very specific mm-hmm. techniques about how you get information from, it could be, what, terrorists or people who yeah. are 
Yeah. Okay. Terrorist so you, suspects, people that you want to recruit. How does that work with you know? I just recently took a a pleasure trip, I guess you would call it, and just got back from uh, Southeast Asia, and I, I'm always observing how the uh, you know when you go through security, how different it is in different countries, and it always seems that in our country it seems somewhat rel- too relaxed. I guess is what I would say. You know, that it seems like the the people who are go doing the security, you know, they just seem to be kind of light and lively and and. When you go to some of these other countries, maybe particularly some of them communist countries, they're much stricter. It really seems as if they're concentrating on you as you're going through security. Can you just comment on that? Well, but, you know, the, the problem with security in America is we're so used to having unlimited freedoms. And whenever you, you try to curtail or, or take freedoms away from people, they, they get upset. Yet, at the same time, they don't want planes blowing up and terrorists getting on planes and hurting people. So what I think we need to do and, and what TSA is doing is they're walking a very fine line between keeping America's uh, freedoms uh, available to all Americans and also protecting Americans. So it's difficult to uh, go one way or the other without, uh, without problems. Yeah, so it's difficult, and I can you kind of see that, I guess, or at least I feel that I have some sense of it when I'm traveling around, and I do travel a lot. So what are some of the things that you can do to protect people's rights and privileges and freedoms, but at the same time use some of those techniques that you've described in order to make sure that you call out the people who are the criminals or the terrorists? Well, it, it, you can look for basic behaviors, uh one of the basic things is terrorists and criminals are not happy people. And happy people do not give off what, what I refer to as friend signals, and they look for threats. So if you're in a, a line, in a, in a TSA line waiting to go through security, and you see somebody that's not issuing these friend signals, they look anxious, they're looking around, and the closer they get to the checkpoint, the more nervous they get, then uh, there's an indication that there's, uh, that, that there's a problem. Now, the other thing that comes into, into play is what if you have a nervous traveler, somebody that doesn't like to travel? So then you look for, they're still going to be nervous. So as they approach the threat point, they're going to become less and, and, and less nervous, but the person who's up to no good is going to become more and more nervous because that threat point or the checkpoint presents a threat to them where they're going to get caught. And once they get through the, through the checkpoint, say you've got somebody that's running late for an, an airplane, they're anxious in line, and I've been that way. I say, come on, hurry up, hurry up, let me get going. I'm, I'm very anxious to get through it. But the closer I get to the checkpoint, the, the better I feel about myself because that's good. I'm going to make my plane. And that becomes less and less of a threat. Or the other person is, becomes more and more of a threat. And then when you get to the, to the uh, waiting area, uh, most people will just relax and say, good, I made my plane. And most terrorists now are faced with an additional threat point, which is getting on the plane. So that's why their, their behavior is going to be more nervous. So those are the kinds of things you look for. It's more uh, You're talking about nervous. Can we be more specific about that? I mean, I, uh, that's a great example. So let's say the person who has, whose intentions are not good, once they get to the waiting area, they're sitting down, 
um, what they're looking around. Can we be more specific or like yeah, the, what they would tend to do? Like we would your, tend to, you get out your iPad or your iPhone and you start talking or eating or all, going to the bathroom, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not true of somebody who has other motives, you know. Right. We, we label those things fight-flight signals. So when you go into a fight-flight response, and that's uh, in anticipation of some threat, so when you go into a fight-flight response, as, a, as somebody up to no good would, then they're going to be giving off the signs of nervousness, sweating, rubbing of the hands, pacing, walking up and down, uh, checking the watch all the time uh, to make sure that uh, you know, they, they want to dissipate this energy because fight-flight creates a lot of energy. And uh, if you can't run away or fight, we have to dissipate that energy. So we, we uh, do things like rub our hands, uh, walk, pace, we sweat, we look around, and uh, we're constantly vigilant. And those are the kinds of things non-verbally you can pick up. And these things are almost subconscious. I mean, people do these things subconsciously. So we, we, we look at people more from a psychological standpoint than uh, an actual physical standpoint, like you mentioned earlier. Well, what about in an airport? So is there anybody sitting there at airports looking at these people, sitting, waiting for their flights? I mean, and observing that kind of behavior? Yeah, the TSA and, and, the, and the, the flight marshals are constantly observing behavior, and the uh, employees are taught to look for certain behaviors that, that indicate uh, a fight-fight signal. And, Jack, and once you talk yeah. to these people, if you approach them and you, you, you ask a few questions, you can resolve why they're anxious, why they're pacing, why they're sweating, and typically if it's uh, if they're... If, they're, if it's a benign situation, you can figure out, based on a few questions, whether they're a threat or not. So, Jack, airport personnel, not just TA, TSA people, are also trained to look for this kind of behavior? Yes. Because they're the ones that are facing the, 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 the flying public. What about... Uh, once you get on a plane, what about the the flight attendants? Are they also trained in the same way that you're talking about? Yeah, they're they're trained to handle all situations that that arise. So, well, that's encouraging because that's what they're there for. They're not there to hand out cookies and 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 soda and coffee. They're there for your safety. So yeah, that's their primary goal is to is to be safe, and and they go over different emergency situations. So as, what kind of well emergency as, do, you, do you train, you know, taking, um, you know, what, what you're talking about and, of course, what were some of these skills that when one reads your book, you can also learn some of these skills. But uh, um, what specific kinds of training programs do, say, flight attendants have? And I assume they have that on a, on a ongoing basis. I mean, do you train people like that? Well, I'm, I don't really want to discuss specific training because okay. then we're, we're revealing methods and technologies and then we're taking the edge that we have away from us. And if you take that psychological edge away from us, now we have to go and, and do more physical security, which that's one thing we, Amer as Americans, don't like. So it's best we leave that alone. All right, we'll leave that alone and we'll get into, we'll get into the specifics of the book. Um, because you are taking some of those skills and teaching us how to use them so that we can take control over our lives in a better way. So there are some 
there are some specific skills how to win over people and, and sort of to be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish um, in everyday life, I guess you would call it. Um, so why do we know the, the like switch? Why do attracting and winning people over? Um, why do we want to do that? Well, because, you know, we're... We're communal beings. We, we, as humans, we need to be with other people. We, we're not meant to be isolated. And so what our brains do is constantly scan the environment, particularly humans that are around us, for friend or foe signals. And uh, when we see the friend signals, our brain t- has a tendency to ignore those so that we don't really know that we're issuing friend signals and receiving friend signals. The only time our brain really takes note is if it's a foe signal. And that tells the brain, you better be alert for a possible threat. But specifically, so now, friend signals, and you mentioned big three friend signals. What are they? I mean, what, um, what are the friend signals? Well, the, the, the first of the big three is the eyebrow flash, and that's a quick up and down movement of the eyebrows, and it lasts about a sixth, sixth of a second. And it's a long-term signal that tells the person you're approaching that you're not a threat. So if you're five, you're typically five, six feet away from a person that's approaching you. If you look at their eyebrows, you'll notice a quick up and down movement of the eyes. And then you subconsciously will issue a, an eyebrow flash back to them to say, I'm not a threat either. So we don't have to you know, get ready to fight each other. So, so we're talking it, about what you describe it as the likability quotient. When do we use this? Why, you know, what, how does this fit into the context of our everyday life? And, and this is interesting because once I, I tell people about the eyebrow flash, they'll come back to me and they say, you know, I, I didn't realize that I, I give eyebrow flashes all the time. And I didn't realize I, I see people giving me eyebrow flashes. So it's just a, a nonverbal way to say we're not a threat to each other. And it's kind of a subconscious, you know, gesture. All these uh, signals are kind of subconscious. But how are we using that to our advantage? So give, it, give us an example, like in a work situation, like if you're giving like a, a, a nonverbal threat with your eyebrows to your boss, that's not a good thing because you want your boss to like you and to approve of you. And so I guess... Well, whenever, whenever I, I go into situations where I'm going to meet another person, I'm, I'm going to to make sure that I issue a, an eyebrow flash, a head tilt, and a smile because I want to predispose that person to like me before I open my mouth. Because a lot of times if you don't issue these, these friend signals, uh, then people are going to look at you and say, you know, I, I don't like that person. I don't like you, but I, I really don't know why. But instinctively, you say there's, there's a problem there. And that's probably because you haven't been issuing these friend signals. And, you know, that happens a lot with, with people from big cities. Uh, I call it the urban scowl. We walk around in a big city, and there's a lot of predators in a big city. We have to guard ourselves against these predators. So what we do is we don't smile. We don't eyebrow flash. We don't look at people. We don't hit, tilt our heads. We look straight ahead. We talk like we got something to say. We walk like we have somewhere to go. And the predators see that and say, He's not as, that person is not as vulnerable as somebody who is issuing friend signals. So, so the, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so there's a place for it, obviously. You know, you have to protect yourself in a big city, uh, but if you're trying to win over the boss or you meet somebody for the first time and you're trying to establish a relationship, a first date, uh, you want them to like you. 
So Yeah, and yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a, a kind of a funny story. When I met my wife, I'm from the south side of Chicago, and I, I didn't know I had my urban scowl. And she was from the suburbs. So I went out to meet her and her friends, and all her friends says, I don't like I don't like Jack because he he looks mean. He looks like he's going to bite my head off. He looks like he's not approachable. And when my wife told me all those things, I said, "Well, I'm I'm none of those things." She says, "I know. I don't know why they're they're telling me that." And then I, you know, finally realized I have an urban scowl that I'm so used to carrying with me in the city that when I get out of that environment, people think that I'm not approachable, I'm not friendly, and I'll bite their head off which is exactly what I want them to think in the city, you know, when, when I'm faced with predators, but certainly not with, with uh, a person I want to date. So you have to be aware of not only your signals, but aware of what the other person is telling you. So you, so can you have monitor. to be aware of all these nonverbal cues, uh, as you say, the other, that the other person's giving off and also that you're giving off. Um, okay, so what are some of the other ones? You talk about the, the friendship formula, um, how, and you describe them as four factors that impact the success or failure of a relationship. Let's talk about those. The friend, What is the friendship formula? What are those factors? All relationships that you have past, present, and, and you're going to have in the future are based on four basic elements. And the first one is proximity. You have to have proximity with the person you want to have a relationship with, of course, either physically or uh, on the Internet, virtual proximity. <clears throat> and when you're proximal to somebody, what ten- tends to happen is you may not even have to talk to that person. You could share the same space, be in the same room, be aware of each other, and that predisposes you to like one another just by being and existing in the same place with somebody. So you need that proximity or you have no relationship. The second thing is you have to have frequency with that person. In other words, you have to frequently be in proximity with that person. But that's not necessarily enough. You need to have duration because the the longer time we spend with people, the more chances we have to influence them and uh, to understand where they're coming from and, and, and share ideas. And the last thing, probably the most important thing, is the intensity of your relationship. And those are the, the nonverbal and verbal cues that you can use to intensify a relationship. So you, you put the combination uh, of that together, kind of like in an algebraic formula, and then you can start adjusting the variables. And what's kind of neat about this is, is uh, I use that to, to assess relationships that I have with people, and couples can do that. Are we spending enough? Say we're together all the time, but are we there frequently together? Maybe we're together and, and we're frequently together, but we don't have enough time with each other. Or maybe we have the first three, proximity, frequency, and duration, but there's no intensity to that relationship. So in order to fix the relationship, you can increase the intensity in this case. And that, that will, you can get, develop a closer relationship. Say there's lots of, of intensity, but you don't get to see that person very frequently. So you're going to have to increase the frequency. Say you see that person, you know, 10 minutes every day, but you have to increase that duration to increase the relationship. So you can evaluate relationships, and you could also develop relationships that way. So the first thing you want to do to develop a relationship is be in proximity with the person. So that and then you issue to... friend signals at a distance. 
and then your frequency and duration and intensity increases, and so does your relationship. But the quality of relationships are different. Let's say you're describing this in terms of your relationship with your your spouse or your partner, and you want it to be a very close, intimate relationship. So the balance would be different than, say, you want a relationship with uh, your teacher. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, the, the intensity, of course, with my spouse, there's going to be proximity, high frequency, high duration, high intensity. With my instructor, what I, if I was a student, what I'd like, you know, you have proximity, but you're not going to have very much frequency, you're not going to have very much duration, and you're not going to have very much intensity because it's, it's a casual relationship. And you can tell when relationships, as a professor... Some students, you know, they come in and they want to have a, 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 a relationship other than a professor-student relationship. They say, can I be your friend? No, because, you know, there's a line between professor and student, and you can adjust that by saying, yeah, we can be together, but we're not going to be very frequent when we're together, and the duration isn't going to be very long, and there's going to be little intensity. So I can control that relationship consciously. So it's interesting. So you always have to be monitoring that kind of, or I guess be aware of that in terms of those, the, the proximity, frequency, duration, and intensity, kind of to monitor the quality of your relationship. Is it where you want it to be, and is it appropriate, like you're talking about, you know, student-professor, um, which is different, obviously, than your partner, and there are other relationships also that, that are different. So that's kind of key, I guess, right? Those are that, that friendship formula. Yeah, and well, you know, it comes down to this. It, it takes work to develop, develop a good relationship. And if you understand the fundamentals of all relationships, then you can consciously figure out what's wrong with your relationship, and then you can consciously figure out how to fix it. So a lot of people, if they're not aware of how relationships are built, how can you fix it if you don't know about the working pieces? in that relationship. Yeah, I, I guess, well, then we all need to kind of, well, we need to read your book and kind of go back to school on this to, to figure this out. I mean, there's also, you talk about, and I think we just have time for kind of one more of, of, of examples of, of how to do this, how to maintain these relationships, uh, breaking the anger cycle. Can you talk a little bit about that before we have to say goodbye? Yeah, sure. Uh, you're going to face angry people throughout your life. And a lot of times what we do is we, you know, we get into this death spiral of angry. you're angry, I'm angry, and we're not thinking, and then we, we tend to uh, disintegrate the relationship. But uh, one way to handle anger is using an empathic statement. If somebody comes up to me and they're angry, I'm going to listen to what they're angry about, and then I'm going to use parallel language, and I'm going to mirror back to them what they just said. And what that does is it, it keeps the focus on the other person, and the other person says to themselves, you know what, I'm being heard, I'm being understood. And uh, the way you construct an empathic statement is you put so you in front of your statement. Because a lot of people say, I know how you feel, and the first thing that you say is, no, you don't, because you're not me. So, so you keeps the focus on the other person. And then once somebody understands, like, wow, somebody's listening to me, then what happens is they have a tendency to vent more of their anger. So when, when you see the signs of 
the ending of that venting, which is a deep breath, a sigh, of the, a sigh or a shoulder drop, then you construct another empathic statement. And then they vent, vent, vent. And as soon as the anger is vented, there's, they, they be, they're done venting, and you can see that very clearly. They, they show, the, again, the, the shoulder drop and the sigh. And that's when you want to introduce a presumptive statement. In other words, you want to you know, uh, you know, direct them on a course of action that they have a very difficult time not, uh, not uh, uh, agreeing with. So this reduces the frustration. That's a great technique. And there are a lot of other techniques. We have to say goodbye now, but in the book, uh, and the, so I want to mention the book, the t- again, The Like Switch, The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Jack Schaefer, psychologist, professor, intelligence consultant, and former FBI special agent. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, great talking to you. Um, you can buy his book online, Amazon.com, and bookstores everywhere. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.